Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 10 of the Anno Domini podcast, a podcast dedicated to the supremacy of Christ over all things, including our days, weeks, and months. Join me as we explore how Christ is revealed through the cyclical life of the church calendar year. We'll discover how this calendar once structured culture and how it can again. We'll also discuss practical ways to observe and celebrate these holy days in our quest to glorify God and live the good life in the midst of all the good He has given us. Well, I hope each of you had a wonderful Palm Sunday. I know for most of you listening, it probably was not spent with your church family, uh, but maybe your closest immediate family or uh, whoever you currently are um, hiding under the bed or um, quaking in the closet with due to this uh, coronavirus fear that's gripping the nation. But we are now well into Holy Week. And with the kingly and joy-filled entrance of the previous Palm Sunday, well, now comes the sinking realization that our King of Glory, who was just received with praise and adulation, praise and adulation that was fit for the King of Kings, that he will soon be stricken, smitten, and afflicted. Soon he'll be stripped of his glory and will be nailed to the cross at the hands of wicked men. As awful as this is, I think it's important to point out that Christ knew this was coming. In fact, he told his disciples in Luke chapter 18, verse 31 through 34, he said this, he said, quote, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be delivered to the Gentiles and will be mocked and insulted and spit upon. They will scourge him and kill him. And the third day, he will rise again. Close quote. Now, this means Jesus knew exactly what was coming. He knew the agonizing death that awaited him. He knew that he was about to become the vilest of sin for his people. The spotless Lamb of God would take on and bear every sin, every single sin of his people. He would even bear those sins that seem to our dulled senses, small, those little bitty things. He died on the cross for those sins. He would bear those sins for our sake. And he knew, and because of all of this, he knew also that his own Father in heaven would turn his back on him in justice and leave him utterly forsaken. Jesus knew all of these things, but here is the good news. Here is... Here is the amazing thing. Jesus knew all of these things were coming, but instead of turning inward, instead of turning the focus on himself and the monumental task that awaited him in just a few short hours, put yourself in his shoes. Would you be thinking of yourself or of others? Well, instead of turning the focus on himself and having a pity party or being in a bad mood, or ranting about it, or just, you know, letting off some steam, or maybe just having a few drinks to relax. You know, those kind of things that man in his sin might think to do. Instead of doing any of those self-focused things, Christ sat down with his disciples and washed them. 
and taught them and fed them. He gave his church one of our most treasured gifts on that most holy Thursday, Monday Thursday. Monday Thursday, which is also called Holy Thursday, is celebrated the day before Good Friday. The word Monday is an ancient word that comes from, it looks like Middle English and Old French words, and it's based on a Latin root that basically means commandment, or you think of our English word of mandate, that's where kind of the word Monday comes, but it, it, it refers to the, the word commandment. Uh, and it's specifically teach, uh, talking about the teaching of Christ during the Last Supper, when Jesus tells his disciples this. He says, quote, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Close quote. So Christ was emphatic during his earthly ministry that he did not come to set aside or to change the law of God. In fact, he fully submitted himself to his father's law. And except for those parts that found their completion in him, uh, when they found their completion in his death, his burial, and his resurrection, things like dietary restrictions, ceremonial laws of uncleanness, uh, sacrificial ordinances, etc., things like that. Except for those parts, we are promised that heaven and earth will pass away before the smallest part of God's law ever passes away, which is just another way of saying that God's law is here to stay. It's never going away. So therefore, when Christ tells us he is giving us a new commandment, we should listen. We should perk up and listen, but we should also try and understand that this word new is not to be thought of as new in the way we might think of like something as novel or like, wow, I've never heard of that before, but more in new as the way Christ comes to make all things new or renewed. He comes that we might have life and have it abundantly, Um, not that he has some interesting novel, never-before-heard teaching, but that he has come to bring freshness to something. He's come to fulfill perfectly the law which man could never keep perfectly. And since we can't, he does. And since he did, his children can. So it's, it's gotta, we have to have the cart in the right place and the horse in the right place. We can't perfectly fulfill the law the way he, the way he did. But he did... And now he's given us the opportunity to do it the way he did. In loving one another simply, not easily, but it simply means humbling yourself to those that you'd likely rather not humble yourself to. Just as Christ washed his disciples' feet, he was saying that Christians ought to be known by their uncanny ability to love each other. The world should see our interactions with one another, and even though we know that the cross of Christ will be foolishness to those who are perishing, we know that's going to be the fact, but the world should see our interactions with each other, the world should see Christians as those who love each other, 
And in, in fact, when Christians exhibit genuine, humble, gentle, and kind love for their fellow Christians, it's one of the greatest evangelism tools we have. Just the fact that we are known for loving our own carries with it a winsome fragrance of newness or even renewedness. And this will draw an unbelieving and crooked generation. It'll draw them away from their love of themselves and into a God-honoring, God-obeying love of the Creator and His children. So this is a powerful, powerful method of evangelism. And all we have to do is love one another. Our biblical segment comes from the epistle written by Paul to the Corinthian believers regarding the Lord's Supper. Now, the Lord's Supper, or the Lord's Table, uh, we also call Communion, is one of two sacraments that the Church holds. I'm specifically referring, of course, to the Protestant Church. The Catholic Church, I believe, holds to like seven. Uh, But the Protestants hold to two, and these two sacraments are Baptism and the Lord's Supper. We believe that all Christians should be baptized and given the name Christian. That's what baptism is. When we are baptized, we are not making a public statement about our faith. That is a modern evangelical idea. That is not the historic view of baptism. When we are baptized, we are not making a public statement about our faith, but we are rather making a public statement about who we belong to. In baptism, we take on a new name and a new identity. Our baptisms are a physical display of the covenantal reality that we are now a new person because Jesus has given us a new name. So instead of viewing baptism as us declaring to the world how committed we are to Jesus, we really ought to start thinking of our baptisms as God telling the world how committed he is to us, because with our baptism, we are covenantally connected. We are covenantally united with Christ. And with our baptisms, as with every covenant in Scripture, come great blessings for obedience and great curses for disobedience. And those who are baptized have full access to this second sacrament, that of the Lord's table. So the Lord's table uh, is not an intellectual act. Again, this is a modern evangelical idea where we are supposed to like remember something while we engage in an arbitrary act. Uh, in other words, um, modern evangelicalism will tell you that when we partake of the Lord's Supper, all we're supposed to do is think about Jesus dying on the cross, and that is what the Lord's Supper is. And then we arbitrarily eat bread and wine. Uh, because Jesus told us to. That's not really what it is. The Lord's table is the place where everyone claimed by Christ should gather. Now, who who is claimed by Christ? How do we know who's claimed by Christ? Those who've been baptized. Uh, now, this includes men, women, boys, girls, the aged, the infirm. That This includes those with low IQs, those unable to talk, those unable to remember those unable to string together coherent thoughts or sentences, that's really important to remember. When we associate the Lord's Supper with intellectual thoughts or that of merely 
thinking about and remembering the death of Jesus and how the bread represents his body and the wine represents his blood, if that's all that communion means, then we begin traveling down a path in which we're going to start excluding people from the Lord's table. Exclusion from the table becomes the driving force. It becomes the primary thing. We have to fence the table. We have to protect the table. Instead, we ought to think of the Lord's table as a family table. My last name is Stout, and all of my children have the last name Stout. Therefore, every one of my children belong at my table. They belong there not because of anything they've done or anything they've thought. They belong there not because they've been good kids. They belong there because they bear the name Stout. It's as simple as that. So how much more should those who are baptized, how much more should the baptized sons and daughters of Christ who bear the name of Christ be brought to the table? It's one of those things where we understand this so readily on a human level. We wouldn't dream of expecting our children to profess faith before we'll let them come to the dinner table. We feed them along the rest of them as we train them for what it means to be a member of our family. And so how much more should our baptized sons and daughters of Christ who bear the name of Christ be brought to the table? So all of that is an introduction of sorts to the text we're going to read for Monday, Thursday. This text comes from the lectionary this week. Uh, it's 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 to 34. Let's read it now, and then after we read it, we'll discuss a little bit more. We'll flesh out some of these fairly controversial statements that I've made on baptism and the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 23 through 34. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. This is the word of the Lord. Jesus instituted his new commandment hours before he was betrayed, deserted, and crucified. He commanded his followers to love one another, and he gave them a culturally relevant way to go about doing this. He washed their feet. That was huge. That was humiliating. That was something you never let the teacher do to you. But then he dropped a bombshell on them. He told them that they were a part of the new covenant now. And as often as we eat the bread and drink the wine, we proclaim the Lord's death. Now, the question has been asked, who gets to come to the Lord's table? 
I said earlier that it belongs to those who are baptized and claim Christ as king. However, many faithful Christians have interpreted this passage from 1 Corinthians 11, um, especially the parts describing examining ourselves and discerning the body. They've, they've interpreted that to indicate that there's some kind of mental exercise going on, that there's a certain theological level you must attain in order for God to feed you. The thinking goes something like this, that if you don't think the right thoughts um, or discern the right theology of what, of what you're doing correctly, and you don't do it right while partaking of communion, then God's going to get you for that. And, and God's going to get you because Paul says some people have gotten sick, some people have even died from doing this somehow incorrectly. So it's kind of scary. It's kind of frightening. We think we got to think the right thoughts and be in the right frame of mind. What I have found to be persuasive, though, is that to discern the body is to understand that you are the body of Christ. In other words, since you are part of the body of Christ, you should be fed the body of Christ. Uh, As Douglas Wilson says, bread should get bread. We're the bread of Christ, we're the body of Christ, we should get bread. So the bread and wine are for the strength and encouragement of the believer in the faith. It's not like some type of test to make sure you're doing things right. And really, think about this. God makes it so simple. He doesn't require theological insight or intellectual horsepower. Simply eating the bread and drinking the cup, you're proclaiming the fact that the Lord died and rose again. You're preaching the gospel. That is so simple, even a baby could do it. Even someone with Alzheimer's could do it. I also asserted during the last episode on Palm Sunday that communion really can't be done at home. Even during this time of quarantine, when the gathering together of God's people is outlawed, even during this, although it is really unprecedented what's going on, we still need to understand that communion means the body of Christ together, partaking of the body of Christ together. You see, if we don't have communion together, then the ecclesiastical structure of the church falls apart. The table is protected by the shepherds of the faith. That would be your pastors and elders. These men have been placed in positions of authority over the people of God, as, and they will have to give an account one day for these people. This is why James tells us that not everybody should want to be a teacher, because you're going to be jar- judged more uh, harshly for this. Um, but this is also why you should be so appreciative of your pastor and elders. These men must take care of you and shepherd you, and they'll have to give an account for you. And so you want to make it easy on them, because uh, being a pastor is, is uh, I can't speak from experience, but I know, uh, I know it's, it's one of the most thankless, hard jobs that are out there. And the, there's a lot of pressure on our pastors, so let's make sure that we, we lift up uh, these men who have, uh, these men and their wives who are supporting them, who are uh, shepherding the people of God. Um, but they, uh, because of this, the church has historically uh, and is commanded biblically to exercise church discipline for those who are rebelling against the law of God. And and the church discipline needs to be carried out by the elders uh, and the pastor of the church. Uh, Matthew 18, of course, uh, lays out the method of church discipline, and it's not exclusive only to uh, the, the church leadership, but the final culmination of church discipline is that of excommunication, 
which was once regarded as the most awful of punishments, it is literally, excommunication is literally excluding those who once professed Christ from the table. And this is always a last resort, but once excommunicated, the rebelling individual would find themselves cut off from the supper and handed over to Satan. However, if communion can be just simply celebrated at home with one's family or or even by yourself, then the God-given authority of the local church to govern her parishioners is hampered. It's, it's not really destroyed, it, it's, but it's hampered in a way, uh, and it's very, very dangerous for the parishioners, because those warnings that Paul gives us in 1 Corinthians 11 about not partaking of the Lord's Supper in a, in a worthy manner, uh, and, and those people have gotten sick and have died from doing it in an unworthy manner, that is, I believe, referring to people who have been cut off from it and are still coming back to it. Or uh, he also talks about it being um, a place of gluttony and people thinking only about themselves. But I also said in last uh, last episode uh, on the on Palm Sunday that coming to the Lord's table is a gift that God gives His children who are no longer at war with Him. If it's merely an intellectual assent to theological statements with a bit of styrofoam cracker and grape juice, then I can understand how evangelicals might be hard-pressed to really see the value. Maybe we'll do it once a quarter, maybe once a year, but we're certainly not going to value it the way we value preaching or we value singing. I mean, really, I can understand why we can go weeks and weeks, months, years even, without ever partaking of communion if that's all it is. But that's not what communion is. Communion is a meal with God. We should be eating good bread, hearty chunks of bread that satisfy, not puffed rounds of styrofoam. We should be drinking the potent cup of blessing, which in Scripture is always wine, and it should be good wine. We should be feasting because we were at one time at war with God. But now, by the broken body and shed blood of Christ, we are no longer at war with him. Now, we eat a meal of peace with the conquering king. Who did he conquer? He conquered our hearts of stone. He gave us hearts of flesh. And now, we offer him our love and our obedience. And he promises us that we are showing our faith in him by simply eating and drinking. We're at peace at the king's table And one day he even promises that we'll eat with him in glory at the Supper of the Lamb. As is our tradition on the Anno Domini podcast, we pick a hymn or a psalm to finish off the show. Today's hymn is from none other than the Isaac Watts, the renowned hymn writer of the 17th century. Trust me, you've heard... Isaac Watts's music. He's one of the most well-known hymn writers, uh, and he wrote prolifically. But I will say, although he wrote prolifically, his hymns were never a mile wide and an inch deep. They were full of poetic gravity and honor and glory for the Lord. So in other words, he was not only prolific, but he was also deeply profound and thoughtful. And he wrote many hymns we still sing today, such as Joy to the World, uh, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, and Jesus Shall Reign. 
The hymn we'll be examining today is called, How Sweet and Awful is the Place. So let's read through the words, and then we'll make some brief comments on them, and then we'll listen to the song. How sweet and awful is the place, with Christ within the doors, while everlasting love displays the choicest of her stores. While all our hearts and all our songs join to admire the feast, each of us cries with thankful tongues, Lord, why was I a guest? Why was I made to hear your voice and enter while there's room when thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come? Twas the same love that spread the feast that sweetly drew us in, else we had still refused to taste and perished in our sin. Pity the nations, O our God, constrain the earth to come, send your victorious word abroad, and bring the strangers home. We long to see your churches full, that all the chosen race may with one voice and heart and soul sing thy redeeming grace. Now, this song is traditionally sung to an Irish hymn melody. I changed the melody and slightly altered the verse order, repeating verses 1 and 5 a second time at the end. But let's take a deeper look at the words. I didn't change the words, just the verse order a little bit. But let's look at the words. Verse 1, we are told in verse 1 how sweet and awful is the place. We are told that the time of the Last Supper was a sweet, was sweet and awful. Not awful meaning terrible, but awful as in full of awe in the traditional way in which we use the word awful. Christ is offering himself, the choicest thing in the world, to his people. The body and blood of Christ is so incredibly precious, the choicest thing in the world, and it belongs to those who belong to Christ. The body and blood of Christ belongs to those who belong to Christ. Verse 2, we are at the Lord's table. And it says that um, as we're at the Lord's table, our hearts and our minds are admiring the feast that's set before us. But we also aren't so brazen and bold to understand that there was nothing we did to deserve our spot at the table. In fact, we ask, Lord, why was I a guest? Verse 3, we extend this line of questioning by asking, why was I made to hear the voice of God? And why was I... Uh, Why was I called to enter into his presence while there is still room, Uh, or in other words, time, or uh, in other words, while I'm still alive and breathing? You know, we look around and we see thousands of others making a wretched choice and starving instead of coming to the king for bread. This is a critical, this is a critical two verses here, verses two and three because it gives such stark contrast to what we have for much of modern church music. Not all modern church music, but much of modern church music. So much of modern church music is Arminian at best and humanist at worst. We want to focus on our love for Jesus and our choice to follow him and how committed we are. In this song, though, we simply ask, why have I been blessed with this? We know it's not because of our devotion to God. Verse 4, we get the answer. We are told that it was the same love that gave his body broken for us and his blood spilled out for us. The same love that gave that spread the feast that's before us, the the, the bread and the wine. It also was that same love that drew us in through the winsome 
song of the gospel. If the Spirit of Christ hadn't done this, then we would have perished in our sin. Verse 5 extends the view out from the church militant to all of Christ's elect throughout the earth. We ask God to take pity on the nations and to constrain or compel the inhabitants of the earth to come to Christ. We ask that the victorious gospel of Christ would be sent out into the world, to send out into the world abroad, and that it would convert the nations and bring the strangers, who we once were ourselves, home, that it would bring the strangers home. And then finally, verse 6. This verse is particularly poignant in our time of quarantine. We long to see the churches of Christ filled with people, not just numbers for numbers' sake, but churches who are full of the chosen race of God and who, with one voice and heart and soul, can together sing of the redeeming grace of Christ. We long to see that come, and we ask the Lord to make that happen. Well, I hope your Holy Thursday is filled with culturally relevant ways of loving your brothers and sisters in Christ. This new commandment really will go into all the world abroad and bring the strangers home, home to Christ. So I will see you tomorrow for our Good Friday podcast. Enjoy this new setting of how sweet and awful is the place. We'll see you next time. Thy 
Palestine love displays the choicest of her stores. Pity the nations, oh our God, constrain the earth to come. Send thy victorious word abroad and bring the strangers home. Strangers home, please bring the strangers home.